Part 1, Chapter 5, Section 2 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 1, Chapter 5, Section 2. Sitting beside McMaster, her eyes fixed on a small door in the corner of a panelled wall, Mrs. Dusherman became a prey to a sudden and overwhelming fit of apprehension. It forced her to say to her guest, though she had resolved to chance it and say nothing, It wasn't perhaps fair to ask you to come all this way. You may get nothing out of my husband. He's apt, especially on Saturdays. She trailed off into indecision. It was possible that nothing might occur. On two Saturdays out of seven, nothing did occur. Then an admission would be wasted. This sympathetic being would go out of her life without a knowledge that he needn't have had to be a slur on her memory in his mind. But then, overwhelmingly, there came over her the feeling that, if he knew of her sufferings, he might feel impelled to remain and comfort her. She cast about for words with which to finish her sentence. But McMaster said, Oh, dear lady, and it seemed to her to be charming to be addressed thus, one understands, one is surely trained and adapted to understand, that these great scholars, these abstracted cognoscenti... Mrs. Dusherman breathed a great, ah, of relief. McMaster had used the exactly right words. And McMaster was going on merely to spend a short hour, a swallow flight, as when the swallow gliding from lofty portal to lofty portal, you know the lines, in these your perfect surroundings. Blissful waves seemed to pass from him to her. It was in this way that men should speak. In that way, steel-blue tie, true-looking gold ring, steel-blue eyes beneath black brows, that men should look. She was half-conscious of warmth. This suggested the bliss of falling asleep, truly in perfect surroundings. The roses on the table were lovely. Their scent came to her. A voice came to her. You do do the thing in style, I must say. The large, clumsy, but otherwise unnoticeable being that this fascinating man had brought in his train was setting up pretensions to her notice. He had just placed before her a small blue china plate that contained a little black caviar and a round of lemon. A small Sevres pink, delicate plate that held the pinkest peach in the room. She had said to him, Oh, a little caviar, a peach a long time before, with the vague underfeeling that the names of such comestibles must convey to her person a charm in the eyes of Caliban. She buckled about her, her armour of charm. Tichens was gazing with large, fishish eyes at the caviar before her. "'How do you get that, for instance?' he asked. "'Oh,' she answered, "'if it wasn't my husband's doing, it would look like ostentation. I'd find it ostentatious for myself.' She found a smile, radiant yet muted. He's trained Simpkins of New Bond Street. For a telephone message overnight, special messengers go to Billingsgate at dawn for salmon and red mullet. This in ice, and great blocks of ice too. It's such pretty stuff. And then by seven the car goes to Ashford Junction. All the same, it's difficult to give a breakfast before ten. She didn't want to waste her careful sentences on this grey fellow. 
She couldn't, however, turn back, as she yearned to do, to the kindredly running phrases, as if out of books she had read, of the smaller man. "'Ah, but it isn't,' teacher said, ostentation. "'It's the great tradition. "'You mustn't ever forget that your husband's breakfast doucheman of Maudlin.' He seemed to be gazing inscrutably deep into her eyes, but no doubt he meant to be agreeable. "'Sometimes I wish I could,' she said. He doesn't get anything out of it himself. He's ascetic to unreasonableness. On Fridays he eats nothing at all. It makes me quite anxious for Saturdays. Tichin said, I know. She exclaimed, and almost with sharpness, You know? He continued to gaze straight into her eyes. Oh, of course, one knows all about breakfast doucheman, he said. He was one of Ruskin's road builders. He was said to be the most Ruskin-like of them all. Mrs. Dusherman cried out, Oh! Fragments of the worst stories that in his worst moods her husband had told her of his old preceptor went through her mind. She imagined that the shameful parts of her intimate life must be known to this nebulous monster. For Tietjens, turned sideways and facing her, had seemed to grow monstrous with undefined outlines. He was the male, threatening, clumsily odious and external, she felt herself say to herself, I will do you an injury if ever. For already she had felt herself swaying the preferences, the thoughts and the future of the man on her other side. He was the male tender, infitting, the complement of the harmony, the meat for consumption, like the sweet pulp of figs. It was inevitable, it was essential to the nature of her relationship with her husband that Mrs. Dusherman should have these feelings. She heard, almost without emotion, so great was her disturbance, from behind her back the dreaded, high, rasping tones. Post coitum tristis! Ha ha! That's what it is! The voice repeated the words and added sardonically, You know what that means? But the problem of her husband had become secondary. The real problem was, what was this monstrous and hateful man going to say of her to his friend when for long hours they were away? He was still gazing into her eyes. He said nonchalantly, rather low, I wouldn't look round if I were you. Vincent McMaster is quite up to dealing with the situation. His voice had the familiarity of an elder brother's. And at once Mrs. Dusherman knew that he knew that already close ties were developing between herself and McMaster. He was speaking as a man speaks in emergencies to the mistress of his dearest friend. He was then one of those formidable and to be feared males who possess the gift of right intuitions. Tichin said, You heard! To the gloating, cruel tones that had asked, You know what that means? McMaster had answered clearly, but with the snappy intonation of a reproving don, Of course I know what it means. It's no discovery. That was exactly the right note. Tietjens, and Mrs. Dusherman too, could hear Mr. Dusherman, invisible behind his rampart of blue spikes and silver, give the answering snuffle of a reproved schoolboy. A hard-faced small man in grey tweed that buttoned collar-like tight round his throat, standing behind the invisible chair, gazed straight forward into infinity. Tietjen said to himself, By God, Parry, the Bermondsey light middleweight. He's there to carry Dusherman off if he becomes violent. 
During the quick look that Teachins took around the table, Mrs. Dusherman gave, sinking lower in her chair, a short gasp of utter relief. Whatever McMaster was going to think of her, he thought now. He knew the worst. It was settled, for good or ill. In a minute she would look round at him. Teachin said, It's all right, McMaster will be splendid. We had a friend up at Cambridge with your husband's tendencies, and McMaster could get him through any social situation. Besides, we're all gentlefolk here. He had seen the Reverend Horsley and Mrs. Wannop both interested in their plates. Of Miss Wannop he was not so certain. He had caught, bent obviously on himself, from large blue eyes, an appealing glance. He said to himself, she must be in the secret. She's appealing to me not to show emotion and upset the apple cart. It is a shame that she should be here, a girl. And into his answering glance he threw the message, it's all right as far as this end of the table is concerned. But Mrs. Dusherman had felt come into herself a little stiffening of morale. McMaster by now knew the worst. Dusherman was quoting snuffingly to him the hot licentiousness of the Trimalchion of Petronius, snuffing into McMaster's ear. She caught the phrase, Festians pure calide. Dusherman, holding her wrist with the painful force of the maniac, had translated it to her over and over again. No doubt that too this hateful man beside her would have guessed. She said, Of course we should all be gentlefolk here. One naturally arranges that. Teachins began to say, Ah, but it isn't so easy to arrange nowadays. All sorts of bounders get into all sorts of holies of holies. Mrs. Dusherman turned her back on him right in the middle of his sentence. She devoured McMaster's face with her eyes in an infinite sense of calm. McMaster, four minutes before, had been the only one to see the entrance, from a small panel door that had behind it another of green bays, of the Reverend Mr. Dusherman, and following him, a man whom McMaster too recognised at once as Parry, the ex-prize fighter. It flashed through his mind at once that this was an extraordinary conjunction. It flashed through his mind, too, that it was extraordinary that anyone so ecstatically handsome as Mrs. Dusherman's husband should not have earned high preferment in a church always hungry for male beauty. Mr. Dusherman was extremely tall, with a slight stoop of the proper clerical type. His face was of alabaster. His grey hair, parted in the middle, fell brilliantly on his high brows. His glance was quick, penetrating, austere his nose very hooked and chiselled. He was the exact man to adorn a lofty and gorgeous fane, as Mrs. Dusherman was the exact woman to consecrate an Episcopal drawing-room. With his great wealth, scholarship and tradition, why then, went through McMaster's mind in a swift pinprick of suspicion, isn't he at least a dean? Mr. Dusherman had walked swiftly to his chair, which Parry, as swiftly walking behind him, drew out. His master slipped into it with a graceful sideways motion. He shook his head at grey Miss Fox, who had moved a hand towards an ivory urn-tap. There was a glass of water beside his plate, and round it his long, very white fingers closed. He stole a quick glance at McMaster, and then looked at him steadily with glittering eyes. He said, "'Good morning, doctor.' 
and then, drowning McMaster's quiet protest, yes, yes, the stethoscope meticulously packed into the top hat and the shining hat left in the hall. The prize-fighter, in tight box-cloth leggings, tight whipcord breeches, and a short tight jacket that buttoned up at the collar to his chin, the exact stud-groom of a man of property, gave a quick glance of recognition to McMaster, and then to Mr. Dusherman's back another quick look, raising his eyebrows. McMaster, who knew him very well because he had given Teachin's boxing lessons at Cambridge, could almost hear him say, A queer change, this, sir, keep your eyes on him a second. And with a quick, light tiptoe of the pugilist, he slipped away to the sideboard. McMaster stole a quick glance on his own account at Mrs. Dusherman. She had her back to him, being deep in conversation with Teachin's. His heart jumped a little when, looking back again, he saw Mr. Dusherman half-raised to his feet, peering round the fortifications of silver. But he sank down again in his chair, and, surveying McMaster with an expression of cunning singular on his ascetic features, exclaimed, "'And your friend? Another medical man? All with stethoscope complete? It takes, of course, two medical men to certify.' He stopped, and with an expression of sudden distorted rage, pushed aside the arm of Parry, who was sliding a plate of sole fillets onto the table beneath his nose. "'Take away!' he was beginning to exclaim thunderously. "'These conducements to the filthy lusts of—' But with another cunning and apprehensive look at McMaster, he said, "'Yes, yes, Parry, that's right, yes, sole. A touch of kidney to follow. Another, yes, grapefruit, with sherry.' He had adopted an old Oxford voice, spread his napkin over his knees, and hastily placed in his mouth a morsel of fish. McMaster, with a patient and distinct intonation, said that he must be permitted to introduce himself. He was McMaster, Mr. Dusherman's correspondent, on the subject of his little monograph. Mr. Dusherman looked at him hard, with an awakened attention that gradually lost suspicion and became gloatingly joyful. "'Ah, yes, McMaster,' he said. "'McMaster, a budding critic, a little of a hedonist, perhaps. "'And, yes, you wired that you were coming, two friends, not medical men, friends.' "'He moved his face closer to McMaster and said, "'How tired you look, worn, worn.' "'McMaster was about to say that he was rather hard-worked "'when, in a harsh high cackle close to his face, there came the Latin words.' Mrs. Dusherman and Teachins had heard. McMaster knew then what he was up against. He took another look at the prize-fighter, moved his head to one side to catch a momentary view of the gigantic Mr. Horsley, whose size took on a new meaning. Then he settled down in his chair and ate a kidney. The physical force present was no doubt enough to suppress Mr. Dusherman should he become violent, and trained. It was one of the curious minor coincidences of life that, at Cambridge, he had once thought of hiring this very parrow to follow round his dear friend Sim. Sim, the most brilliant of sardonic ironists, sane, decent, and ordinarily a little prudish on the surface, had been subject to just such temporary lapses as Mr. Dusherman. On society occasions he would stand up and shout, or sit down and whisper the most unthinkable indecencies. McMaster, who had loved him very much, had run round with Sim as often as he could, and had thus gained skill in dealing with these manifestations. He felt suddenly a certain pleasure, 
He thought he might gain prestige in the eyes of Mrs. Dusherman if he dealt quietly and efficiently with this situation. It might even lead to an intimacy. He asked nothing better. He knew that Mrs. Dusherman had turned towards him. He could feel her listening and observing him. It was as if her glance was warm on his cheek. But he did not look round. He had to keep his eyes on the gloating face of her husband. Mr. Dusherman was quoting Petronius, leaning towards his guest. McMaster consumed kidneys stiffly. He said, that isn't the amended version of the iambics. William of its Mollendorf that we used. To interrupt him, Mr. Dusherman put his thin hand courteously on McMaster's arm. It had a great Cornelian seal set in red gold on the third finger. He went on, reciting in ecstasy, his head a little on one side, as if he were listening to invisible choristers. McMaster really disliked the Oxford intonation of Latin. He looked for a short moment at Mrs. Dusherman. Her eyes were upon him, large, shadowy, full of gratitude. He saw, too, that they were welling over with wetness. He looked quickly back at Dusherman, and suddenly it came to him. She was suffering. She was probably suffering intensely. It had not occurred to him that she would suffer, partly because he was without nerves himself, partly because he had conceived of Mrs. Dusherman as firstly feeling admiration for himself. Now it seemed to him abominable that she should suffer. Mrs. Dusherman was in an agony. McMaster had looked at her intently and looked away. She read into his glance contempt for her situation and anger that he should have been placed in such a position. In her pain she stretched out her hand and touched his arm. McMaster was aware of her touch. His mind seemed filled with sweetness. But he kept his head obstinately averted. For her sake he did not dare to look away from the maniacal face. A crisis was coming. Mr. Dusherman had arrived at the English translation. He placed his hands on the tablecloth in preparation for rising. He was going to stand on his feet and shout obscenities wildly to the other guests. It was the exact moment. McMaster made his voice dry and penetrating to say, Youth of tepid loves is an lamentable rendering of pure Kalide. It's lamentably antiquated. Dusherman choked and said, What? What? What's that? It's just like Oxford to use an 18th century crib. I suppose that's Whiston and Ditton, something like that. He observed Dusherman brought out of his impulse to be wavering, as if he were coming awake in a strange place. He added, Anyhow, it's wretched schoolboy smut, fifth form, or not even that. Have some galantine. I'm going to. Your soul's cold. Mr. Dusherman looked down at his plate. Yes, yes, he muttered. Yes, with sugar and vinegar sauce. The prize-fighter slipped away to the sideboard, an admirable quiet fellow as unobtrusive as a burying beetle. McMaster said, You were about to tell me something for my little monograph. What became of Maggie... Maggie Simpson, the Scots girl who was Rossetti's model for A la Finestra del Cielo? Mr. Dusherman looked at McMaster with sane, muddled, rather exhausted eyes. A la finestra, he exclaimed. Oh yes, I've got the watercolour. I saw her sitting for it and bought it on the spot. He looked again at his plate, started at sight of the galantine, and began to eat ravenously. A beautiful girl, he said, very long-necked. She wasn't, of course, uh, 
respectable. She's living yet, I think, very old. I saw her two years ago. She had a lot of pictures, relics, of course. In the Whitechapel Road she lived. She was naturally of that class. He went muttering on, his head above his plate. McMaster considered that the fit was over. He was irresistibly impelled to turn to Mrs. Dusherman. Her face was rigid, stiff. He said swiftly, If he'll eat a little, get his stomach filled, it calls the blood down from the head. She said, Oh, forgive, it's dreadful for you. Myself, I will never forgive. He said, No, no, why, it's what I'm for. A deep emotion brought her whole white face to life. Oh, you good man, she said in her profound tones, and they remained gazing at each other. Suddenly, from behind McMaster's back, Mr. Dusherman shouted, I say he made a settlement on her, dum casta et sola, of course, whilst she remained chaste and alone. Mr. Dusherman, suddenly feeling the absence of the powerful will that had seemed to overweigh his own like a great force in the darkness, was on his feet, panting and delighted. Chaste, he shouted, chaste, you observe, what a world of suggestion in the word. He surveyed the opulent broadness of his tablecloth. It spread out before his eyes as if it had been a great expanse of meadow in which he could gallop, relaxing his limbs after long captivity. He shouted three obscene words and went on in his Oxford movement voice. But chastity! Mrs. Wallop suddenly said, Oh, and looked at her daughter, whose face grew slowly crimson as she continued to peel a peach. Mrs. Wannup turned to Mr. Horsley beside her and said, You write too, I believe, Mr. Horsley. No doubt something more learned than my poor readers would care for. Mr. Horsley had been preparing, according to his instructions from Mrs. Dusherman, to shout a description of an article he had been writing about the Mosella of Ausonius, but as he was slow in starting, the lady got in first. She talked on serenely about the tastes of the large public, Teachens leant across to Miss Wannup, and, holding in his right hand a half-peeled fig, said to her, as loudly as he could, "'I've got a message for you from Mr. Waterhouse. He says if you'll—' The completely deaf Miss Fox, who had had her training by writing, remarked diagonally to Mrs. Dusherman, "'I think we shall have thunder today. Have you remarked the number of minute insects?' When my revered preceptor, Mr. Dusherman, thundered on, drove away in the carriage on his wedding day, he said to his bride, We will live like the blessed angels, how sublime. I too, after my nuptials, Mrs. Dusherman suddenly screamed, Oh no! As if checked for a moment in their stride, all the others paused for a breath. Then they continued talking with polite animation and listening with minute attention. To Teachens that seemed the highest achievement and justification of English manners. Parry, the prize-fighter, had twice caught his master by the arm and shouted that breakfast was getting cold. He said now to McMaster that he and the Reverend Horsley could get Mr. Dusherman away, but there'd be a hell of a fight. McMaster whispered, wait, and turning to Mrs. Dusherman, he said, I can stop him, shall I? She said, yes, yes, anything. He observed tears, isolated upon her cheeks, a thing he had never seen. With caution and with hot rage, he whispered into the prize-fighter's hairy ear that was held down to him, 
punch him in the kidney with your thumb as hard as you can without breaking your thumb. Mr. Dusherman had just declaimed, I too, after my nuptials, he began to wave his arms, pausing and looking from unlistening face to unlistening face. Mrs. Dusherman had just screamed. Mr. Dusherman thought that the arrow of God struck him. He imagined himself an unworthy messenger. In such pain as he had never conceived of, he fell into his chair and sat huddled up, a darkness covering his eyes. He won't get up again, McMaster whispered to the appreciative pugilist. He'll want to, but he'll be afraid. He said to Mrs. Dusherman, Dearest lady, it's all over, I assure you of that. It's a scientific nerve counter-irritant. Mrs. Dusherman said, Forgive, with one deep sob. You can never respect... She felt her eyes explore his face as the wretch in a cell explores the face of his executioner for a sign of pardon. Her heart stayed still, her breath suspended itself. Then complete heaven began. Upon her left palm she felt cool fingers beneath the cloth. This man knew always the exact right action. Upon the fingers cool like spikenard and ambrosia, her fingers closed themselves. In complete bliss, in a quiet room, his voice went on talking. At first with great neatness of phrase, but with what refinement. He explained that certain excesses, being merely nervous cravings, can be combated, if not indeed cured altogether, by the fear of, by the determination not to ensue, sharp physical pain, which of course is a nervous matter too. Parry, at a given moment, had said into his master's ear, It's time you prepared your sermon for tomorrow, sir and Mr. Dusherman had gone as quietly as he had arrived, gliding over the thick carpet to the small door. Then McMaster said to her, You come from Edinburgh? You'll know the Fiveshire coast then. Do I not, she said. His hand remained in hers. He began to talk of the winds on the links and the sanderlings along the flats with such a Scots voice and in phrases so vivid that she saw her childhood again and had in her eyes a wetness of a happier order. She released his cool hand after a long, gentle pressure. But when it was gone, it was as if much of her life went. She said, "'You'll be knowing King Gussie House just outside your town. It was there I spent my holidays as a child.' He answered, Maybe I played round it a barefoot lad and you and your grandeur within. She said, Oh no, hardly. There would be the difference of our ages. And indeed there are other things I will tell you. She addressed herself to Teachens with all her heroic armour of charm buckled on again. Only think, I find Mr. McMaster and I almost played together in our youths. He looked at her, she knew, with a commiseration that she hated. "'Then you're an older friend than I,' he asked. "'Though I've known him since I was fourteen, and I don't believe you could be a better. He's a good fellow.' She hated him for his condescension towards a better man, and for his warning. She knew it was a warning for her to spare his friend. Mrs. Wallop gave a distinct, but not an alarming, scream. Mr. Horsley had been talking to her about an unusual fish that used to inhabit the Moselle in Roman times. The Mosella of Osonius, the subject of the essay he was writing, is mostly about fish. 
No, he shouted, it's been said to be the roach, but there are no roach in the river now. Vanulis viridis oculisque. No, it's the other way round, red fins. Mrs. Wallop's scream and her wide gesture, her hand indeed was nearly over his mouth and her trailing sleeve across his plate, were enough to interrupt him. Teachin's, she again screamed, is it possible? She pushed her daughter out of her seat, and moving round beside the young man, she overwhelmed him with a vociferous love. As Teachins had turned to speak to Mrs. Dusherman, she had recognised his aquiline half-profile as exactly that of his father at her own wedding breakfast. To the table that knew it by heart, though Teachins himself didn't, she recited the story of how his father had saved her life and was her mascot and she offered the son, for to the father she had never been allowed to make any return, her house, her purse, her heart, her time, her all. She was so completely sincere that, as the party broke up, she just nodded to McMaster, and, catching Titchens forcibly by the arm, said perfunctorily to the critic, "'Sorry I can't help you any more with the article, but my dear Chrissy must have the books he wants at once, this very minute.' She moved off. Teachens grappled to her, her daughter following as a young swan follows its parents. In her gracious manner, Mrs. Dusherman had received the thanks of her guests for her wonderful breakfast, and had hoped that now that they found their ways there. The echoes of the dispersed festival seemed to whisper in the room. McMaster and Mrs. Dusherman faced each other, their eyes wary and longing. He said, "'It's dreadful to have to go now, but I have an engagement.' She said, yes, I know, with your great friends. He answered, oh, only with Mr. Waterhouse and General Campion and Mr. Sandbach, of course. She had a moment of fierce pleasure at the thought that Tietjens was not to be of the company. Her man would be outsoaring the vulgarian of his youth, of his past that she didn't know. Almost harshly, she exclaimed, I don't want you to be mistaken about King Gussie House. It was just a holiday school, not a grand place. It was very costly, he said, and she seemed to waver on her feet. Yes, yes, she said, nearly in a whisper, but you're so grand now. I was only the child of very poor bodies. Johnson's of Midlothian, but very poor bodies. I... He bought me, you might say, you know, put me in very rich schools when I was fourteen. My people were glad, but I think if my mother had known when I married... She writhed her whole body. Oh, dreadful, dreadful, she exclaimed. I want you to know. His hands were shaking as if he had been in a jolting cart. Their lips met in a passion of pity and tears. He removed his mouth to say, I must see you this evening. I shall be mad with anxiety about you. She whispered, yes, yes, in the yew walk. Her eyes were closed. She pressed her body fiercely into his. You are the first man, she breathed. I will be the only one forever, he said. He began to see himself in the tall room with the long curtains. A round eagle mirror reflected them gleaming like a bejeweled picture with great depths, the entwined figures. They drew apart to gaze at each other, holding hands. The voice of Teachin said, "'McMaster, you're to dine at Mrs. Wallop's tonight. Don't dress, I shan't.' He was looking at them without any expression, as if he had interrupted a game of cards. 
large, grey, fresh-featured, the white patch glistening on the side of his grizzled hair. McMaster said, All right, it's near here, isn't it? I've got an engagement just after. Teachin said that that would be all right. He would be working himself, all night probably, for Waterhouse. Mrs. Dusherman said with swift jealousy, You let him order you about. Teachin's was gone. McMaster said absently, Who? Chrissy? Yes, sometimes I him, sometimes he me. We make engagements. My best friend. The most brilliant man in England, of the best stock, too. Teachin's of Groby. Feeling that she didn't appreciate his friend, he was abstractedly piling on commendations. He's making calculations now for the government that no other man in England could make. But he's going... An extreme languor had settled on him. He felt weakened, but yet triumphant with the cessation of her grasp. It occurred to him numbly that he would be seeing less of Teachin's. A grief. He heard himself, quote, Since when we stand side by side... His voice trembled. Ah, yes, came in her deep tones. The beautiful lines, they're true. We must part in this world. They seemed to her lovely and mournful words to say, heavenly to have them to say, vibratingly, arousing all sorts of images. McMaster mournfully, too, said, We must wait. He added fiercely, But tonight, at dusk, he imagined the dusk under the yew hedge. A shining motor drew up in the sunlight under the window. Yes, yes, she said. There's a little white gate from the lane. She imagined the interview of passion and mournfulness among dim objects half seen, so much of glamour she could allow herself. Afterwards he must come to the house to ask after her health, and they would walk side by side on the lawn, publicly, in the warm light, talking of indifferent but beautiful poetries, a little wearily, but with what currents electrifying and passing between their flesh, and then long, circumspect years. McMaster went down the tall steps to the car that gleamed in the summer sun. The roses shone over the supremely levelled turf. His heel met the stones with the hard tread of a conqueror. He could have shouted aloud. End of Part 1, Chapter 5, Section 2